You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. This is A.P. Weber. It's good to have you with me. So, as a writer of fiction, story structure is always on my mind. Everyone knows the universal Campbellian heroic journey. Less known are Kurt Vonnegut's story graphs in which he identifies such oft-used structures as man in whole, boy meets girl, and Cinderella. It's possible those can just be nested under the heroic journey, but I don't know. For my part, I've identified at least a couple of recurring story plot types, less general in nature. They're found in the literary and cinematic exchange between the U.S. and Japan. There is, of course, The Seven Samurai, which was reinterpreted into the classic Western The Magnificent Seven. But lots of other films have followed this same general story. How about The Three Amigos, or Disney's A Bug's Life? I won't go into detail, but it's the same basic plot. Another identifiable recurring story is what I call the Yojimbo plot. The samurai film Yojimbo inspired A Fistful of Dollars, which in turn inspired a lot of stuff. You probably already know that, but a lot of people don't know that Yojimbo itself was an interpretation of the Dashiell Hammett novel Red Harvest. I call it the Yojimbo plot because more people are familiar with it, and it sounds cool. In this episode of Lies and Half-Truths, we're continuing the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked with a new story. The Koo Island Con. It's my attempt at bringing something new to the Yojimbo plot, and I hope you enjoy it. But of course, if you haven't listened to the Moonshadow chapters 1 through 14 yet, be sure to do that so you know what's going on. Before we get started, if you, like me, think this show deserves a wider audience, please rate and review Lies and Half-Truths wherever you listen to it, or just tell a friend about it. Thanks. And now... Lies and Half-Truths presents The Moonshadow, first book of the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. Part 4. The Koo Island Con. Chapter 15 Cassandra wondered if she had finally arrived at that moment where she was truly and completely in over her head. The sour smell of the great ape's sweat and the shadows behind her grew ever more acute as she walked in the fluttering ring of firelight. Ahead, the hunched form of a second ape trundled along on three limbs, illuminating the otherwise dark passage with the torch he held aloft. He turned and set his glistening black eyes on her. The arch of his heavy shoulders almost touched the stone ceiling. When he sneered, his yellow incisors and pink gums gleamed in the amber glow. Hurry up, the both of yous! His voice rumbled. The both of yous? The ape behind echoed, 
I'm doing my job keeping an eye on this one. They'd been bickering like this since the moment she met them. It wasn't the apes that made Cassandra nervous. What made her nervous was what lay on the other end of her trek through Koo Island's interior, what she had to do there. Dim, right? She said to the ape ahead of her in the passage. How much further is it? I'm Jim, said the ape. He's Dim. Right, sorry, I didn't mean to. Whatever, we're here, Jim said, waving his torch over a flight of slate steps, previously obscured by shadow. At the top of the stairs stood a pair of stone doors. No less than six locks ran down the center of them. Jim sighed. You got the keys? Dim grunted from behind, a key ring jingling in his long fingers. He shouldered past Jim and undid each lock in turn. Then the apes positioned themselves on either side and pushed the doors open. Daylight, bright and golden, shone through the doorway. They all stood blinking and squinting for a long moment before proceeding. The room Cassandra stepped into had a vaulted ceiling and great marble pillars. The far side was open to the air, and she could see the teal ocean and the emerald arches of some of the other islands in the Krongan archipelago. The sounds of tropical birds, tree frogs, and lesser primates filtered in from outside, along with the soft din of the surf. Hey, boss! Your appointment's here! called Jim. A noise came from behind a closed door, off on the right of the apartment. The boss ain't been sleeping too good lately, said Dim, as though apologizing. The door opened, and a man in a robe emerged. He wore a sleeping mask on his prominent forehead. His lids hung in bags around his eyes, and a shadow of stubble rimmed his jaw. How's that? he demanded. Cassandra stepped forward and offered her hand. Mr. Elihu, my name is Cassandra of Clan Roko and I am here representing the Privateers Guild. For a moment, the man didn't move. He looked her up and down with his sleepy eyes before giving out a terse laugh. Ha! Huh, you trying to give me a heart attack, girl? I almost took you seriously. I think she is serious, boss, said Dim. Shut up, you dumb monkey. Go make me some coffee. You're lucky I don't believe you, girl. Because I don't like big bossy guilds or unions and the like interfering in my business. Koo Island is my island. It's been in my family for generations. The distillery is mine, and no third party is going to leech my profits. So you are lucky I don't believe you represent the guild. Because if I did believe you, I would have one of my apes throw you out the window. That's a long drop. Cassandra took a breath. She realized she wasn't nervous anymore. Mr. Elihu, she began, I am not going to waste time trying to convince you that I am, in fact, representing the Guild, nor am I going to bother reassuring you that I am safe to do business with. But defenestrating me would be a grave mistake, and it would not solve your problem. Elihu rolled his shoulders, cracked his neck as if getting ready for a fight. What problem? he said. Cassandra could see sweat forming atop his balding crown. She said, 
the one where you hired thugs to put down a labor dispute instead of appealing to the privateers guild for mediation. Now the thugs won't leave. You wouldn't have had that problem with the guild, by the way. Maybe I don't want them to leave. Is that why you hired another group of thugs to run the first group off? Because now you have two gangs fighting for control on your island, and they're bleeding you dry. For a moment, Elihu just watched her. She watched him watching her. The ape beside her shifted his weight, shuffling his feet and hands along the floor. Elihu turned away. He scratched the bald spot at the back of his head. What do you want? Money. A lot of it. Also, for you to sign a contract with the Privateers Guild for protection. Believe me, in the long run, you'll be saving money. Elihu walked to the open side of the apartment and looked out on the sea. Dim brought him a porcelain mug. He stood for a long moment with his back to Cassandra, sipping his coffee and watching the undulating surf. Fine, he said. The shanty town spread out from Ku's scaffolding over the sea on the eastern side of the island, and only on the eastern side. It's so nothing obstructs his view from his apartment on the other side, said Keat, overlooking the labyrinth of narrow boardwalks and huts from his own third-floor apartment in the heart of the slum. He was a slight man with dark features. He wore a simple, ill-fitting suit which combined with his stature gave Woodrow the impression that Keat was not the kind of man one would ever worry about crossing. Woodrow sat at Keat's modest wooden table, listening and sipping tea out of a cronganut husk cup. Hartford stood mute behind him. In a corner of the room, wearing a pained expression and holding his wings drawn in close to his back as if in a great effort not to touch anything, hovered the angel. I grew up in these slums, Keat went on, back when Elihu's father was in charge. Then it was, will you harvest the cronganuts, or will you work in the processing plant, or will you work in the distillery? Now it's, will you have a job at all? He owns everything you see out there. The stores, the houses, even the boats that go in and out of the harbor. He owns the harbor. Hell, he owns the island. Quite literally, the island itself. It's all his. What do I have? He cuts my wage, then he cuts it again. If I don't like it, I'm out of a job. So that's why you organized the strike? Yes. But now things are worse. The blood letters came and broke up the union. Then they started squeezing Elihu for more money. So Elihu brought in the war dogs. Now all the two gangs do is fight and bleed the workers of their hard-earned money in exchange for protection from the other side. It's a mess. It's costing Elihu an arm and a leg to stay in business, but he just takes his losses out on the little guy. While Keat talked, Cassandra arrived, wearing her hood pulled down low over her brow. She glanced around outside before closing the door behind her. Did anyone see you guys come together? She said, waving a finger between Woodrow and the angel. No said Woodrow. Because we didn't come together. Why are you still wearing that sash? Cassandra said with an appalled expression. Woodrow looked down at the crimson band that ran across his chest from his shoulder. Before he could answer, Cassandra pointed at Hartford. 
More importantly, why is he still wearing it? What's the big deal? Ro, this is a delicate operation. If either side even suspects you guys are moles, not only is the plan ruined, but they're going to kill you. Cassandra, relax. You're just worried something might go wrong with your crazy cockamamie scheme. Which is natural, because it's a crazy cockamamie scheme. You trying to be funny? I'm honestly not sure. Shut up, she said, and turned to Keat. Mr. Keat, it's good to see you again. Thank you for allowing us to have our little clandestine meeting in your home. It's the least I could do, Miss Cassandra. I asked for your help, after all. No, you asked for guild intervention. That's better than help. So far, everything is going exactly as planned. Alihu has signed a contract and agreed to pay the fee we decided on. It would seem our moles and the blood letters are in place. How's it going with the war dogs? She turned to the angel. The angel seemed distracted. It is uncomfortable, he said. That's not stellar intel, Featherhead, said Woodrow. Care to elaborate? These women, these camp women, as they call them, they are very aggressive. What in the world are you talking about? The angel's expression was pained. Many of them wish to have Congress with me. Cassandra held up a hand. Stop talking. Gross. By sentiments exactly, the angel insisted. Yet they are very persistent. One in particular. Cassandra and Woodrow exchanged smirks. So... You have a girlfriend, she teased. The angel scowled. I had hoped that you would be more helpful in this regard. I see no need to harm these women, but if they persist... I have much more important problems to deal with right now. You're a big-shot angel. You're going to have to tough it out. Just remember... Money is power in this lowly, degenerate world of ours, and you're going to need a lot of it to complete your quest. By the end of this con, believe me, there's going to be a lot of power to go around. The angel gave a vague nod, but Keat looked confused. Con? What con? said the small man. Cassandra pulled out a chair and gestured for him to sit. Let me explain, Mr. Keat. The first stage of the plan is already in motion. I've been busy today. After I met with Elihu, I set up a parlay with the Bloods and the Dogs. The guild has some clout, even with rogue bands of ruffians, it would seem. They've agreed to a champion battle. Winner takes all. The island, the protection racket, all of it. What does that mean? Asked Keat. It's a champion battle. Each side picks a champion to represent their cause. They fight. The winner's gang stays. The loser's gang goes. Keat nodded slowly. Don't worry. We got it rigged. The dogs are going to pick the angel as their champion. Why, you ask? Because he's an angel. They're thinking no one's going to beat an angel, and no one will. Because we got the other guy right here. She jabbed a thumb at Hartford. The Bloods just recruited this mysterious kid with a giant iron golem. Who's going to beat him, right? Two big shots, one on each side, giving the gangs just enough confidence to agree to the bout. 
Except Hartford is going to throw the fight, got it? And what will this accomplish? Keith seemed even more confused now. What's it going to accomplish? It gets rid of the Bloods for us. Which is good, because as far as I can tell, they're the nastier of the two gangs. And then what? Then we get rid of the other gang. Later. But how? How? I don't know. But I've got us this far, I'll figure it out. At this point, Woodrow felt he should say something. This far? We're nowhere. We don't even know if they are going to pick Hartford and the Angel as their champions. Trust me. I know how this type thinks. Besides, you're missing the point. We have the inside scoop on a big fight. If we bet all the money we have on it, because where there are scoundrels, there is sure to be betting, if we bet all our money on the angel, we rake in a fortune. Then we have a fortune to work with for our next plan. The room was silent. Then all at once. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard said Woodrow. I don't like it, said the angel. It's very risky. Hartford tapped his fingertips together in his nervous way. What? Cassandra said. This is going to work, trust me. It's not even a con, complained Woodrow. We're just fixing a fight. How's that help Keith and the other workers? Keith can bet on the fight and use the money as he sees fit. Just don't tell anyone else, Keat. And it is too a con. We're conning Elihu, the war dogs, and the bloodletters. They're all being conned. We're deceiving them, sure, but I don't think that makes it a con. The angel shook his head. I am very poor at deception. All this subterfuge. I don't know if I can do it. Give me a straight fight. I can clear out these ruffians in a day or so. No, Woodrow said. I've had enough killing for a lifetime. Then we have to do it my way, Cassandra insisted. Look, Angel, you don't have to fake anything. Just beat Hartford. And Roe, just wait. You'll see. They are going to pick our guys for the fight. After that, everything falls into place. And if they don't? If they don't, we lose nothing. We'll figure something else out. No big deal. Woodrow shook his head. Fine, we'll give it a try, but this is never going to work. I cannot believe her stupid plan is working, Woodrow muttered to Hartford on the morning of the fight. His commanding officer in the blood letters had ordered him to prepare his golem for battle. Woodrow wasn't sure exactly what that meant, but he took Hartford to a vacant garage in the Bloodletters' territory of the slum, where they could be alone and pretend to do some important work. He found some chrome polish and thought he would see how well it would work on Hartford's helmet. You can't believe what's working. The voice behind Woodrow startled him. For a fraction of a second, he had the irrational fear that all his deceptions had been revealed. He spun around. When he saw who it was, he relaxed. Oh, it's you. A man stood in the open doorway, having just come in off the boardwalk. He was tall and possessed shoulders of an uncanny bulk, or at least they appeared that way, but Woodrow had never seen him without his armor, so it was hard to tell. 
The effect was that he seemed to have a disproportionately small head, for which he attracted a good deal of mockery from the other bloodletters. What are you doing here? Woodrow asked, his surprise turning to irritation at having been taken unaware. The broad-shouldered man furrowed his brow. Well, that's no way to talk to a comrade in arms. I just came by to see how your preparations were going. It's very exciting, isn't it? A champion battle, just like in the epic poems. And look who we have on our side, a steel giant. There's no way we can lose. Woodrow studied the man. He certainly was not from this region. Although he had dark hair, his skin was paler than even a native Dewey Islander. He had only recently joined the Bloodletters, just days before Woodrow and Hartford, as it happened. He's probably some criminal from the north on the run, Woodrow reasoned. I'm surrounded by scoundrels. He narrowed his eyes at the man. What did you say your name was again? I'm a mole, he cleared his throat. <clears throat> they call me Mulberry. And where did you say you were from again? Oh, here and there. Up north? Up, yes. Woodrow rubbed at the back of his neck. Hmm, well, Hartford here is strong. I've never met anyone stronger, actually. But who knows who the war dogs have on their side? No one as strong as Hartford, I'm sure of it, will be running this island in no time. Woodrow thought about Cassandra's scheme. He thought about how much he disliked all these rogues, and this Mulberry character was no exception. Well, Mr. Mulberry, he said, trying to sound certain and professional the way Cassandra did when she lied to people. I think you make a strong case, and that is why I intend to bet my entire salary on this fight. The representative from the Privateers Guild, this Cassandra, I believe her name is, she's taking bets. I think she's putting her money on the dogs. Apparently it's a lot of money, too. Is that right? Does she know who the champions are? She doesn't have a clue. Well, this sounds like a sure thing. I believe it is, Mr. Mulberry, I believe it is. Do you think I have time to get in on this action before the fight? If you go now, I think you can find her. I will do just that, said Mulberry. He turned to leave, but halted and looked over his massive shoulder. Thank you, Woodrow. You're a pretty good little guy. Woodrow watched him leave. He took a heavy breath. What am I doing? This whole thing is ridiculous. How can this possibly end in anything but disaster for us? Besides, I know this whole plan is for the greater good and all, but it just feels so wrong. He stood in silence for a moment, listening to the sound of Hartford's nervous fingers. He decided he had better buck up, for the golem's sake. Well, there's no turning back now. Just stick to the plan, Hartford. You gotta put up a little bit of a fight, land a couple of good blows on him. Then, when he hits you back, just lay down. Not right away. Make it look convincing. The gears in Hartford's head clicked and whirred and sighed. Don't worry. I made him promise he wouldn't pull your head off again. Just stay cool. You're going to do fine. The selected battleground 
was the dome of the island, the highest point at the very center. Cassandra had organized a team of unemployed shantytowners to clear out the cronganut trees at that spot. As the hour of the fight approached, both gangs formed up battle lines around the perimeter of the arena. On one side, the bloodletters formed sober ranks. They kept Hartford in the rear, hooded and cloaked. On the other side, the dogs massed. They had their weapons in one hand, uncorked bottles of booze in the other, and were hooting and periodically breaking out into their body anthem. The angel was nowhere to be seen. Cassandra stood in the center of the arena, between Ralu, leader of the Bloodletters, and Denetrus, who led the war dogs. All three wore grave expressions, but when Cassandra looked around and caught Woodrow's eye, she had to stifle a grin. Then the angel showed up, and the dogs went nuts. He swooped up from the side of the island, barrel rolled, and nose-dived toward the ground. A foot and a half above the heads of the crowd, he corrected his position and landed on his feet in a flourish of gleaming white. As soon as the angel touched down, the camp women broke out of the war dog's ranks and rushed him with gleeful squeals. The women laid a garland of flowers over his head, and several thrust their tokens of favor upon him. The angel stiffened, but accepted the tokens as politely as he could. In the end, he had quite a few silk and satin handkerchiefs, a small box wrapped in paper, and a brassiere. He bowed to the ladies, and one by one folded each handkerchief and placed them on the ground. He wasn't sure what the brassiere was, but he treated it with as much dignity as he did the other tokens and placed it aside. Woodrow watched all this. If I didn't know better, I would think he was enjoying himself over there, he thought. When the angel came to the little box, wrapped in paper, he held it in his palm and cocked an eyebrow at it. Open it! Someone shouted from the crowd of dogs, and soon they were all chanting, Open it! Open it! The angel frowned. He pulled on the string that bound the paper. Beneath the paper was a small cardboard box. Open it! Open it! The dogs chanted louder and faster. He lifted the lid, dipped his fingers in, and came out with a silver chain. He examined it with a knotted brow. A silver box-shaped bobble hung from the chain. An auburn-haired woman in a veil, and very little else, took the necklace from him and placed it around his neck. The angel tilted his head to one side. He had a strange look on his face. His breath came out in a cloud of willowy mist. That's not good, thought Woodrow. He looked at Cassandra to see if she noticed the change in the angel's demeanor. She was saying something to Ralu in her professional, lying manner. Ralu brushed her off. She tugged at the seam of her cowl. It was her tell, Woodrow knew. She always tugged on her cowl when she was nervous. But no one else seemed to see that something was amiss. The dogs urged the angel toward the center of the arena. Ralu waved to the blood letters, which was Woodrow's signal to bring out Hartford. Remember what I told you, he whispered to the golem. Nothing's changed. 
when the champions met in the middle they did not quite look the part. The angel stood wavering from side to side, his wings limp and trailing behind him on the ground. Hartford kept glancing around like he didn't know what was going on. The crowd on both sides roared and cursed at them. Fight! was the most often heard admonishment. Come on, guys, thought Woodrow. Make it look real. Hartford, with some obvious reluctance, lifted his fist in the air. He swung at the angel's shoulder. His iron knuckles grazed the angel and then fell limp. The angel staggered backward, wavered, and collapsed in a heap on the ground. At the roar of the crowd, Hartford's body went rigid. He turned in a circle several times and then laid down on the ground next to the angel. Thanks for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme was provided by Josiah Martins. Original music by Mackenzie Stubbard. As always, consider liking, sharing, or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can also support me, A.P. Weber, on Patreon. In any case, please join us again next time for more Lies and Half-Truths. Half-Truths.